Good morning, Internet. This is the Hey Retriever podcast, and one of your hosts is here. That's me, John Michael Ryan. And Matt is the other one, and I'm also here. We're so good at this. It's such a weird way to start. I'm here, guys. People always ask, where's Matt? Uh, Today's a fun episode. It's a fun episode for me. And it's fun because it's something that I care a lot about, and also with a person who I care about. Matt, on the other hand. It's not that I don't care at all. I don't know Gabe very well, and I actually like to start by asking you why we would want to talk about camera rental because we wouldn't call Enterprise and talk about van rental. I mean, I would. Well, I'm you very would, curious yeah. about the logistics of it all. Uh, today's a fun thing. So we have with us Gabe Mays, Gabriel Mays. You may call him either name. Um, before we jump into why rentals are important to me and then to Gabe, Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, good, it's good to uh, finally get on here with you guys. Gabe, you are currently with Abel Sine. Yeah, so I'm the director of rental at Able Sending. So we're like a services company. We do, you know, sales, rentals, um, servicing gear, training, uh, studio installs. Um, but we call ourselves a services company, but we're, we really just like to educate people. Um, so yeah, we, the, the division that I run is the rental department. We have an office in New York and out here in LA where I'm located. And uh, and so that's, that's basically what I do on the daily is uh, run the rental department. And that's a great segue because to answer your question, Matt, back in 2008, when I was like, I'm going to be a production person company because I didn't know what a company was, the first company I visited was Abel Sine in New York. Um, and I, I walked into this rental facility and I, I saw all of these things and these devices that I had never been exposed to um, in my philosophy degree at SLU. And I was flabbergasted to use a word. But what what really happened was the staff at the facility, at the rental house, took time to talk to me and to educate me and and to show me things. And I got to learn and I made some, some friends and you start to develop. And so rental became part of my culture because it very quickly became apparent to me that the cost of buying all of this would be exorbitant and I only need small pieces of the puzzle. And that became part of the fabric of who I was as a DP. Uh, and then that relationship extended and grew and, and followed its way all the way at West, where I met Gabe. Uh, but to answer your question, Matt, rentals are important because it's the backbone. And well, let me play the the complete neophyte here and ask why why wouldn't you just own a camera and make that your you know profession, make that part of your business? I'll turn to the expert, Gabe. Yeah, so I mean, you certainly could, and um, you know, we have a sales division, so we we always it, uh, the company I work for, we're always whatever's best for your particular situation. Um, so you know, if you're working on a year long long dock, then you know, probably owning might make more sense. The issues with owning versus renting is if you rent gear, then you have a service team behind you. So in other words, if if you've, like John, for instance, we did a project together and he had a bunch of reds out on it. Well, if one of his reds goes down or he needs to change a lens or changes his mind, hollers at me, 
And within an hour or two, he's got another camera body. If he's got a tech support question or anything's going wrong, there's a whole slew of, you know, 45 people in our rental department that can help answer that question. So it, it's really more of a service thing uh, to, to rent versus buy. Um, and also if you own, you know, you're responsible for getting it repaired and sending it to the manufacturer, updating your own firmware, cleaning your own sensors. And not everybody knows how to do that. Not everybody knows how to you know, maintain all their own gear. It would be like, um, it, you know, it's like not having a mechanic, right? You know, it's like some people can can maintain their own car, great, but other people need that mechanic behind them. And we're kind of the mechanic that helps everything, you know, roll for for a lot of our clients. And our clients are put in a lot of really stressful stressful situations where, you know, you've got, you know, you, you spend a month planning for a shoot and you have a celebrity for literally 30 minutes. And so you can't have anything go wrong. You can't have any, Issues. So, you know, our big thing is is our QC team is very thorough with going through gear and checking every input, output, uh, cleaning sensors. So, you know, we spend about two hours on every camera, and I kind of doubt that the owner operator does the same. Maybe so, but I kind of doubt they do the same. So that's kind of the big thing. But there's nothing wrong with owning gear. Financially, owning gear on a lot of projects makes a ton of sense. That's a great answer, Matt. How do you feel? Yep, that I I feel uh, more informed. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. no, no. It's a, it was a really <laughs> By good. By the one. Hay Retriever podcast standard, that was a, an appropriately sized answer. That was uh, good. Okay, all right. Well, and, it's, and it's something that you know, I I have run into this over the years. Where when I'm setting up a camera team or I'm building an approach to a project, I will always have a person say, "Oh, you know, I've got an Airy, or I've got a Red, or I've got this or that." And I, I never mean to dismiss the owner operator. Um, that's great, but for me it makes a very big difference when an owner operator tells me that their gear is at a rental house or it's subbed or it's, it's, you know, it's housed somewhere versus it's in my basement. And I, and I respect everybody's ability in this country to, to run their own business and to operate in their own means. But for me as a DP now director, and as an EP, there's something different about knowing there there's a team. Like you said, there's a pack of people behind this. And, and we saw that play out in so many projects and so many places together over the years, Gabe. Um, the team is important and there's lots of different teams. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's other benefits of a rental house as well is, um, you know, for instance, you know, when John was working on one of his projects, he came in and, and was checking out lenses and cameras and we were dealing with, you know, well, post doesn't want 8k. So what's the file size and this and that. So, you know, if you own gear, it's very difficult to test a bunch of gear, to test a bunch of lenses, filtration, um, you know, and that's what, that's where we come into play. It's like, if you're working on a long dock or a feature, for sure, you're probably going to come in and do a day of testing. And, you know, we'll have our lens people out there with you. We'll have our camera people out there with you. Um, you know, we've got people that work in post. And so uh, that that's very important as well. So that that's kind of where it really comes into play. And then as far as like the, you know, before the shoot, we have an entire prep facility, you know, here in LA and in New York. And so ACs would come in and build the camera in all the different, uh, you know, form factors that they would need for the particular shoot. So, um, you know, if, if, oh, we're going to need to go handheld. Oh, we're going to need to go on a gimbal. Oh, we've got a techno as well. Oh, it's going to be, you know, this, that. So, you know, they're going to build the camera in all these different ways so that when they go out, they have all the pieces on set for the next three months to make that camera in any form factor they need. And so once again, that's part of that prep process. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of ACs will come to us and, and, and ask us for things that don't exist. They're like, 
you know, it's like, I want this product. And it's like, well, that's not a thing. But the question isn't, you know, we don't say that's not a thing. We say, well, what are you trying to achieve? Oh, well, the DP wants the camera to be in his hands, but he wants all the power and MDRs and transmitters in his backpack so that his arms are very lightweight and free. Okay, cool. Well, then let's work on that. And then we then we spend a couple of hours figuring out a solution. We make some custom cables and those types of things. So, you know, that's that's the main difference uh, between a rental house and owning is you just don't get that kind of service. And that's what I always think. And then people always say, well, there's a lot of rental houses out there. Like what makes the one that you work at different? And I think it goes, that in particular goes to like relationships and trust. Um, I think, you know, there's in LA right now, there's probably 50 rental houses within 20 miles of me that you could rent an Alexa Mini or a Red or a, a Venice at. So how do I compete with those other 50 rental houses? And you can't compete just on price. That's a race to the absolute bottom. And that's never going to be, you know, a way to to keep a business, uh, you know, profitable. So what you do is you build relationships with people, relationships like I have with John that we built, you know, eight years ago or whatever it was. And, you know, to me, that's the most important part of running any business is the relationships. I'm not selling a camera or renting a camera or a lens. I'm selling a relationship and trust and a level of service. That's the difference between me and an owner operator or share grid or another rental house is building that relationship. It's like going back to the car mechanic analogy. It's like, if you have a car mechanic that you trust, you don't need him to call you and ask you how your car is doing. And do you need any service done on it? I don't need to cold call people and be like, John, do you need to rent anything? No, it's like if you have a relationship or a car mechanic that you trust, as soon as your car is having issues, that's your that's the first call you make. And so as soon as a DP gets greenlit on a project, the first call I want that DP to make is to me with his camera list and with what lensing and testing and this and that. And so to me, it's all about trust um, and that relationship. And and like I say, and that goes, and that's why, you know, uh, clients will follow uh rental agents from rental house to rental house if they move around because it, they trust the person as much as they trust the company. What does the other side of that relationship look like for you? Like, are there qualifiers? Are there? Are you more interested in clients that might be working on cooler, bigger stuff or who take better care of their of your stuff? Or <laughs> what, what? how yeah, do you kind of no, build so that side? That's a good question. Um I think, you know, when I moved to LA close to 10 years ago, um, it, it's a it's a very um, hard place. It can be a very hard place. Um, you know, I thought I was the smartest person in the world when it came to camera gear. And um, little did I know that I was very ignorant and, uh, you know, I was the smartest person in a small little town that I came from. And then I moved to, you know, the, the big city and it's like, wow, okay, I, I have a lot of learning to do. But I would go into a rental house and it was not a fun situation. It was almost a good old boys club. It was, you walked in and if you weren't a part of that club, you didn't feel welcome. And if you had a question, it felt like you were treated like, you should know this. You're, you, you were hired on this shoot. You shouldn't be on this shoot if you don't know. Well, nobody's going to know every camera. They're constantly coming out like all the time. And we're always looking to innovate and do different things. So I knew when when I joined Able Cine that that we wanted to create an atmosphere where we could we could give the the quality of service to the biggest and the best. 
but also that when a person in college walks in and is doing their thesis project, that we would treat them the exact same way. And I think that's really important because the people in college and the people who are on these projects that have literally zero money and they don't know what they're doing, they're going to be the next big DP and the next big AC. And they're going, and we want to help them along with their career. And I want them to, if I help them when they're 22 years old and I I give them all this knowledge and help train them and whatever, when they're big time, they'll be my client for life. I don't want to steal clients from a massive rental house. I want to build my own client base and I want to grow this thing, you know? And so to me, that's really, really important is, um, you know, to, to never, we, we, we want to be super diverse in, you know, I, I mentioned the term good old boys club. Well, you know, we, we, we want to be diverse to any, any, you know, gender that walks in here. We want to be diverse to any ethnicity that walks in here and any age group that walks in here. And so that's, I think, hugely important for me uh, because I, I felt a little, I felt very uncomfortable uh, in the beginning and I, and I, I'll never forget that. And it, it really kind of drives the ethos that I try to live by and I try to train our team by. Yeah. That's a great and move. And Matt, if I can hop in for a quick second here. Yeah. What I want to get into is that story a little bit of, of, of where you come from, because we, sh- we share some happiness there. Um, talk yeah. to me about that journey from, from Gabe going from the center out to the West and then developing those relationships. Before you do, let me just say that I I come from this originally as a writer, Gabe. And so John and I have worked together for a long time. And every time we work in Los Angeles, we'd talk to you first. And I'm not a gearhead. I don't think about cameras the way he does. Um, and I, you know, I, I know that there's a relationship there, but I didn't really get it until now. Like that, the, your approach makes perfect sense as the the first call. Um, so this is really fun. Actually, this is really interesting. I knew me. you'd like this, Matt. <laughs> so Gabe, <laughs> where are you from? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I grew up all over the United States. So I moved around. My dad is actually a preacher. And so I have a very unique uh, background where uh, when you're a preacher and you're, you know, my dad was like a youth pastor, a music pastor. So it felt like every two or three years we were moving to a bigger city, a larger church, um, you know, so that he could develop his, his career. I know it sounds weird to say, but, you know, he, he would say he was following what he was called to do, but, you know, we were, we were basically moving up. And so I moved a lot and I think that helped, um, kind of shape and mold, my ability to talk to just about anybody about just about anything um, because I had to make new friends every couple of years. And so I think that, you know, that's kind of, so that I, but I, I mainly lived in the Midwest. Um, I was born in Southern Indiana and then moved in Indianapolis, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Dayton, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Salt Lake City, Utah. And then I went to school in Springfield, Missouri. Um, and so I went to school to study um, like film and broadcast. Um, I think it was called electronic media. It was very broad, but my main focus was film because that's what I had a huge passion in. Um, And, you know, there I met a ton of really great people in the industry, um, a lot of students that are now in the industry. But, uh, you know, I I still thought I was the biggest and the best at everything uh, there. And um, I, I always used to joke that 
those who can't do teach, right? You know, I think we've all heard that old adage and we used to roll our eyes at our professors. And so I graduate uh, with a degree in electronic media and the university offered me a job to start teaching there. And of course, when you're 22 years old and you know your student loans are going to start coming in, I said, yes, of course. So uh, then I taught film actually there for about eight years uh, and I ran their television and uh, film programs, uh, like the engineering side of it. So that's kind of where like my background is. And I, I all through that, I, going back to my, my statement of those who can't do teach, I kept saying, I'm going to be a different kind of teacher. I'm not writing thesis papers. I'm not publishing articles in magazines and, and, and in journals. I'm going to live on set and I'm going to invite every student who wants to be on set with me. They're going to have the opportunity to be on set with me. So I used to shoot music videos like constantly, just tons and tons of music videos. Um, and then documentaries are a super passion of mine. I, that's like pretty much all I watch. And so that's all I love to like work on as well is, is documentaries. And I love documentaries because you go into it with this preconceived notion of exactly what the documentary is going to be. And then as you're shooting it and as you're interviewing people, the story completely changes in different directions that you never thought about. And it turns out amazing and so much better than what you even envisioned. And it's totally different than what you envisioned because you follow where the story leads you and you don't force you know, a square peg into a round hole just because this was your agenda. You know, I'm very against, uh, you should have a plan when you're going into a doc, but you want to, you want to, you want to let the doc shape itself. Um, and you just never know where that's going to go. And so I find that super fun. And, and also like, I love to shoot and be creative, but then I also love post. And so when it comes to documentaries, a lot of the documentary story is told in the post edit. And so, so anyway, so that's, music videos, documentaries. So I was shooting just nonstop and I have, I would have just students constantly. It was free labor. Come on. It was the greatest thing ever. I act like I was doing it for them. I was, <laughs> I was doing it for me. I mean, free labor to help me set up tracks and dollies and this and that, you know, but they were, hopefully they were learning something, but um, it was a huge passion of mine. And I, I still to this day love to shoot. Um, I love my wife and my daughter a lot more. So I shoot a lot less than I used to because my current job sucks up a lot of my time. Um, so I shoot a lot less, but it's still, it's my creative outlet. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a release. Uh, it's my way to get away from the hustle and bustle and stress of business and numbers. And when you're on set, it's crazy and stressful, but it's so much fun at the same time. Like, it's just, I mean, John, you can attest to this. I mean, I, I mean, you've been put under so much pressure on your shoots, but yet, you know, I, I would I would assume that you 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 don't hate those moments. You you thrive in those moments. Uh, you always go back to them. I mean, there's there's so, there's so much to gather from what you just said. First off, of course, the Missouri Indiana connection is wonderful for Matthew and I. Um, yeah, Matt being from Indiana, and then Matt, yeah, yeah, and Matt being a documentarian as well. Both of you share a lot of interest, and I I, I do too. I do share a lot of joy in documentary in the process of approaching through neutral storytelling and not forcing agendas and, and observing. Um, but what I what I particularly love though is, and I'd never drawn this connection until now, you look at Lock and Stash in Springfield and what what's what's growing in the middle of Missouri and how interesting, you know, how interesting these 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 companies and these people are. And it's hard not to question then too, like that that the time you're there and the excitement 
and the people that yours, the lives you're touching and so forth, in a way, it kind of feels like was the start of a new thing for that area, for that region. I I certainly wouldn't take credit for, you know, Springfield booming, but um, I definitely have worked with alongside and trained up a good amount of people that are in that area. There's several production companies that have started and nearly all of them were students of of mine and went to the same, you know, my alma mater. And so I I definitely take um a lot of a lot of pride and in, in their success. I don't think they would attribute their success to me because, you know, they're they're successful because of who they are. But um but I I, I love that area. It was it was so fun living in Springfield because it's so different than LA. And I love LA because we have really way better weather. But um, you know, living in Missouri and especially in Springfield, the community was so giving to the arts. And so, you know, it was like, here I am, I'm shooting a music video and I need a nightclub or I need a bar or I need a restaurant or I need a jail cell or a church or this or that. And man, you could pick up the phone and people were willing to no joke, like open their restaurant up on a closed day and for totally free and let you come in and shoot. And then they, when your project would launch, they would then promote your project like they were right there helping you make it right alongside it. And they were your biggest like cheerleaders and champions. And it's like that community just is what really built the production little hub that it's become. Not me, really, it's the community there. It's like, you know, and 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 that was that's something that I certainly miss. Um, obviously living in LA, it's like, you know, oh, you want to shoot here? Well, pay thousands of dollars for permits and thousands of dollars for this and that. And, you know, it's it's very uh, commercialized. And it was it was so different there. And it was really refreshing to be there. It's a very different approach, isn't it? I think you every city has its own flavor and its own approach, but you can tell by how regular production happens in that city, what kind of parameters or gates there are to, to do stuff. And you, and you hit it on the head. You know, when you shoot, <laughs> when you shoot in the Midwest or in, in small towns in general, there always is this, this excitement about the process because it's foreign and it's different and people get involved in such a different way and, you know, enter all the, what are you guys making? A Mayo commercial jokes, you know, like it's, it's a different kind of vibe. Do you think that do you think that may have changed in the last? Uh, how long ago did you leave Springfield? Uh, it was probably like uh, nine, ten years ago. I I don't think the community has changed. Um, I think you know all of my friends that still live there still have a lot of resources at their disposal um, from the community. You know the Branson the Branson Springfield connection um, is 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 pretty great. Um, you know, and I think what's also great is it's helped Branson's. Uh, tourism and commercialism also grew in the last nine, 10 years because they now have the ability to produce really great content without having to bring in the big city people. And, yeah. you know, that, that didn't cost a lot of money to fly people in. They, they were able to produce, you know, LA content right there in Springfield. And that's pretty great. And then we're seeing, you know, television shows and documentaries and all sorts of things get greenlit in that area because they have a talent pool in that area. You know, it's kind of funny. If you, you know, we always think about um, what grows a new market in our industry. And and a lot of people would say, well, tax credits are really important. And they are. Like, you know, if, if, if your state wants to grow a film industry, tax credits are hugely important. But beyond tax credits and what takes time, 
is you have to build an infrastructure and a talent mm-hmm. pool. So right, you know, several, several years ago in Albuquerque, well, in New Mexico, started having really great tax incentives. And just because they have really great tax incentives doesn't automatically mean that you can start producing tons of content in that area. It took a long time to build some studio spaces for people to actually want to move there that are that, that are skilled in this area or to train up locals that are skilled in this area. And so I think having a big talent pool, it takes a long time, but I think that's what Branson and Springfield and St. Louis really have going for them right now is the talent pool is really great. And that is huge for producers because now a producer, you know, might only need to bring in a DP or a director, you know, uh, but they can hire the, the rest of the crew locally. And that, you know, on the budget item, budget line item, that's massive. And that's what will sway someone from shooting and trying to make it look like it's in that area, but shooting here in LA as to actually just going there and shooting. And so I think having a talent pool in that area is, is, a, is a major game changer. And trust me, the talent pool in that area rivals LA. Um, there's a really good friend of mine, David Newton. He lives in Branson and he is one of the best gimbal operators in the entire industry. And he still lives there. And he lives there because he's so good that people are more than willing to fly him anywhere in the world because he's so good. And he can live, you know, on the lake for pennies on the dollar in Branson, Missouri, and, you know, and and be where he wants to be around his family. But uh, this guy, he rides a, he has this massive gimbal setup and he rides a Segway, uh, like two wheel scooter. And it's pretty incredible. He's the guy that just gets ridiculous shots. But, um, you know, I think the talent pool in that area, and we've actually seen people from, LA moved to that area, which is kind of cool too. Um, I was at the um, ASC award ceremony here a couple of months ago and I'm sitting at a table and I, you know, I, I looked at the guy next to me and I say, Oh, what, what do you do? He says, Oh, I'm a DP. And I said, Oh, have you shot anything that I've seen? And he's like, Oh, well I, I shoot the show scandal and Grey's anatomy. He reels off this list and I'm like, Holy crap. This guy's like, Oh man, this, this, this is big time. This guy's amazing. And I'm like, oh, you live here in LA? And he goes, actually, I live in uh, Table Rock Lake in Missouri. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, man. He goes, when I get a gig, I just, you know, they just fly me here and I stay here for three months. And then I go back to peaceful Missouri where I want to be. And, and so the talent pool, it, 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 people are actually moving that direction, which is kind of crazy. Um, it could be because of cost of living or politics or other things too. But a lot of people are moving that way because it's, you know, it's also a growing industry. Yes. Uh, You do have to have the reputation that will follow you, though, too, right? Like, you have to have established your skill set with people who hire. Um, And that's that's no small thing. I mean, you have to put the time in somewhere, right? Yeah, I think you have to decide, like, what you want to do and where you want to be. So, you know, if, if you're in a small town anywhere in the United States and you like that town, then you can d- develop business and a skill set and grow your business and and shoot in that area and do exactly what you want to do. Unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to do anything at a high level or a high budget or that's, you know, a very commercialized on the national platform from there because the celebrities live in big cities, the big producers and executive producers live in big cities. And so if you want to build connections and work on the biggest and best stuff, then yeah, it's much better to live in a big city like 
LA, Atlanta, or New York. But it doesn't mean that you can't be super successful and have a very fulfilling life and create amazing content right in the little town or wherever you live. Um, you you just have to grow it yourself, and you have to be you have to know that you're never going to bring in the Super Bowl commercial to your town probably. If you want to work on that, then you've got to move. If you know you're not going to you to work on the hundred million dollar feature. If you want to do that. You either have to be super specialized and really good in what you do and willing to travel, or you've got to move to one of the one of the three big areas in the in the United States that do those things. But it doesn't mean you can't have a super successful career in production right in your own town. And I think that's I think that's something that's really important for people to um, to learn is where 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 do you really find happiness? You know, like. It's not always about chasing the next big thing. The grass isn't always greener. LA has major, major problems. Um, you know, people in LA can be super fake and it's, you know, and very, they're all about themselves and there's always an ulterior motive. And people from the Midwest tend to be a lot more genuine and much more helpful. So, you know, it's not a knock on or on either one, but, um, you know, a lot of people move to LA and they think that that's what they want to do. And the LA lifestyle isn't for everybody. And then they realize that, you know what? Like life is pretty darn good where I was. Uh, And so the grass isn't always greener. It doesn't mean don't chase your dreams and don't follow this, but you can grow something right where you're at. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to move to LA just just to get a job. Uh, And I think that's what's been proven in Springfield with these productions companies popping up. And and when I, I get so excited about every time I see them produce something, it's that's that's just amazing. Is like they did what other people were saying wasn't possible. You know, everybody said you had to move to LA, you had to you had to do this, and they're they're doing it right there where they're where they want to be, where they like the people and they like the culture. So, are we missing that piece of your story? How did you get from Springfield to LA, or why? Yeah, so I always wanted to move to LA. Um, and initially it was because, you know, I, I wanted to be the biggest and best. And I thought I was the, I was really, it was really cocky and arrogant. And I really thought that, that I could be this, you know, big time successful person. Um, and LA's great at humbling you. Um, but so I, I was teaching and I remember I was listening to one of our kick kickoff meetings at the university and the president was, you know, talking about how the staff that's there was really called to be there and, you know, was fulfilling a mission and everything they were saying was so amazing, but it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't me. I wasn't there for the right reasons. I was there because it was easy and it was a paycheck and I got it right when I got, when I graduated. And it was like, I went home and I remember talking to my wife and I said, you know, I'm fairly successful. We're paying the bills. We're living a good life but I'm not doing what I want to do. And I, and maybe I'll never be successful, but I'll never know. And I'm going to regret if we don't move to LA and if we don't try. And I said, if we move back here in one year, because I've crashed and burned, at least I will have known that I tried and I won't have that regret. And my wife is like the biggest supportive person ever. And she was like, you know, Whatever you want to do, and you know, I, 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 she works in childcare, so she's like, I can, I can, I can move. She can move anywhere. So I did what everybody thought was absolutely stupid, and I left a very nice, cush job teaching, and 
started looking for a gig here in LA. And um, I never had stepped foot in a rental house in my entire life. And um, somehow I got a job as a rental agent because I thought it would be a good way to make connections with DPs and ACs and producers, which it absolutely is. Um, if you're interested in growing, you know, if you're new to a big city and you want to work in production, I think working at a rental house is a really great way to meet people. Uh, it's a great networking tool and it also, you know, pays you as well at the same time. So, um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in that, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I thought I was the greatest, you know, all this and that, and it was very humbling. And I've come to learn that I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I work really hard. And I think you can accomplish pretty much anything you want in life if, if you just work super hard at it. So I became, I was a rental agent. This company I owe a lot to. They hugely invested in me. Um, all the people around me didn't treat me like morons and they uh, helped me grow and learn. And I worked really hard. And um, and then next thing you know, I became manager of the LA office. And then about a year and a half ago, um, also became the, the director of rental at Able City and now run our entire rental operation. So um, they, they put a lot of trust in me. I'm not 100% sure why, um, but uh, I, 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 I have them fooled, I think. And I, I fake it every day and try to make it happen. But um, it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, moving to LA, it's, it can, LA can be one of the best places in the world, but it also can be one of the loneliest places in the world. And I knew that moving here. And I think if, if you don't have a good support system behind you, um, you know, moving to a big city is very tough. So it's like, you know, I moved here with my best friend, my wife. And so I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't worried about it being a lonely place because I, I had my support system right there along with me. Um, so for me, it was just about figuring out if this is where I really wanted to be and learning the industry. And it's kind of funny, you know, LA is this, this big golden statue, but actually it's quite small, the industry that is. Um, and that's good and bad. It's good because, you know, once you're in, it's a very small network and group of people. Um, it's bad because it's hard to get in because it's a small group of people. And also it means that you're, um, you know, your, your character and your, your, like your performance um, matters a lot because everyone talks. And so, you know, if you're, if you do a poor pro, if you do a bad on a particular project or you're difficult to work with, you're a difficult person or, you know, you're an egomaniac or whatever, trust me, the word spreads like wildfire and everyone knows, and it's much more difficult to get jobs. So I think, um, you know, you're, I think in, in this small group of people, we, we hold people accountable. And, you know, when I first moved here, it was, it was tough. And there was a lot of people who were just not fun people to work with. They were uber difficult. They were very good at what they did in the industry, but they were just, I mean, just crazy psycho people with, egos like you wouldn't believe. And what we've seen over the last well, close to 10 years is we've seen a whole new influx of young people come in who have an enthusiasm and good personalities and social skills. And we've seen those people come in and they're slowly taking the jobs away from these people who are really good, but are really difficult. And it's like, everyone thinks that because they're really good at something that nobody else could be as good. Well, there's a lot of people who are super good, if not better. And they just haven't gotten the opportunity yet. And we're seeing people get opportunities and these people are thriving. And I think, you know, 
being on a film set, John can attest to this, being on a film set is crazy stressful, man. It's it's insane. And the last thing you really need, you, you need people who are really skilled and, and good at what they do, but the last thing you need is egos and drama and people who are difficult. And so we're seeing those people drop off. And those clients that used to come in and those ACs that used to come in that, you know, my team would be, my team would just like grit their teeth when they would see them walk in like, oh no, that's the AC on this job. This person is horrible. They treat me like crap the entire day. We're seeing those people get jobs less and less and less. And we're seeing those people that we've invested in and that we've raised up that that love us and that are, you know, genuine people. We're seeing them get more and more and more and more and more work. And I think it's great. I mean, I, I don't want anybody to starve, you know, but I think it's great. It's really encouraging. There's so many. Uh, Dane, what I'd like for you to do here is take the the wave the wave racer sixty four uh, sound effect for checkpoint, and it's going to go right here. Because there are so many things from what you've just took us through that are that resonate to me. Not only as a person from Missouri, as a, as a DP, as 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 a human, as an industry participant. Um, there's just I love where your head is, and I, and I, I love how you see things, and when you talk about this being a relational industry and you talk about this being something you build over time and the strength comes in those in the form of those relationships to me the purification metaphorically speaking that happens when when the difficult people start to phase out is beautiful because all of that arbitrage all of that that, that ego and that the drama which is what i am no stranger to um it takes a toll and it's even taken a toll on me as, as Matt and I journey through my own process into directing, you know, unlearning things that you learn even and unlearning responses. I think the, the, uh, a film set has to run as something like a military hierarchy, right? There has to be a chain of command. There has to be a flow of information that's regimented. And for a long time, that protected people who were toxic, right? That, that your place in that hierarchy defined who you could be shitty to. And I don't think that's true anymore. I, I think, or that's changing. That's what's yeah. changing. And, the, and it's a good thing because people should be rewarded for treating people decently, you know? And, and you also should be rewarded for being good at your job, but it's not, it, that's not the only thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, we saw it with these people who were honestly really good at their job, but just, I mean, Criminals, to be honest, and you know, I mean, you look at the Harvey Weinstein's and the, you know, I mean, really, these people were really good at their job and uber successful. And I mean, literally, studios owe these people, you know, they're a lot of success, you know, but these people were terrible people and they were literally criminals doing things that, you know, the normal person would get arrested for doing and they would be fired at any normal corporate job by HR in a matter of seconds but they were getting away with it for years and years and years and years and years. And I think when a lot of that broke, I think it trickled down. Those are the ones that you you see on the news, right? And the Because they're the very high-level, high-profile ones. But that same effect has trickled down all the way through to the catering, to the camera people, to the drivers. It's like, it's like no, 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 no. We, we can't say these things. 
We don't want to work with racists and people who are sexist and, you know, people who treat people differently based on what they look like. It's like, no, 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 that's not okay. It's not okay in the corporate world. Why would it be okay on a film set? And it used to be, and it's it's not anymore. And I think, honestly, that's great. I mean, we you know, we can say that we live in this woke culture that's maybe too sensitive at times, but I'd honestly rather be too sensitive than to not be sensitive at all. Um, so, you know, maybe we take it too far, but it's like, no, 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 there are boundaries and you have to be careful. I mean, the last thing you want to do is, is, you know, destroy someone's career or life because you're saying things that you don't, you don't think are inappropriate, but are literally just driving at their core, you know, and, and just, you know, and the next thing you know, this person's no longer in the industry anymore. And, and you, it's because of you. And it's because of those toxic things that you said to them. And they were like, I don't want to be a part of anything like this. And they, and they move away. And that's, that's what you, you certainly want to avoid. So I think, you know, I say we, we've, you know, we've seen it on a high profile level, but it has trickled down. And I think that's great. I mean, we've had, we've had people come in here in years, you know, years and years and years ago that have said things that I'm thinking, do I, do I tell them that they have to leave? You know, that's so inappropriate. You know, it's just like, and it puts me in a weird spot because they're paying us to be here. But they're saying things to my team that I'm like, this is not okay. And we're, we don't see that anymore. Very, very few. And it's like, that's good. Yeah. Amen. There's, there's, there's definitely, I think, something to resonate with, with where things are headed. And, you know, going shortly back to how this region has grown. You know, we, we live in a city here in St. Louis, I do, that for so many years had one rental house and now we have two. And there's more grip and electric options and, and let alone, you know, what's happening in Springfield or other communities, Des Moines even. You're starting to realize that like the stamp of approval that meant you work in film or you work in video um, used to be the three, four market. You know, we, we like to include Chicago, Cabe. So we like okay. to, we like yeah, to say yeah, there I are forgot, four. I'm sorry, I forgot about you. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it it's expanded to where, especially post COVID, now it really the, the 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 equalizers there. No one really really cares as much about where you are unless it is inhibitive to the budget. And so when you look at what is equity in in a production now, what is equity in an industry now? It is it has come back to like, are you happy? Are you fed? And are you safe? And if you can provide those things as a production company or as a, as a rental facility, ultimately all of us here as people, then you're doing something that actually matters far, far more than whether or not you are on a, <laughs> this lens or that camera, or you use this platform or you distributed with this person. It, now it's about what are you doing to shape a lifestyle and a living for people? I love that stuff. No, yeah, me too. I mean, it's, I think, Everybody has different um, priorities in life, as we should. And so some people' priorities are, you know, they want to live where they can afford to buy a house. They want to live where people are, you know, the, like more of a Southern hospitality. Um, and yet in the past, in years and years ago, it was difficult if your passion was filmmaking, it was difficult to be successful and get those things and that's what we're seeing change. And we're seeing people invest. You know, we're seeing companies started and investors start companies in smaller spots. And, you know, I think, you know, you think like, uh, like for instance, right now in like Austin, Texas, they're building a massive studio space. And it's like, 
we're, we're seeing areas that you, you know, Austin, Texas, come on, you don't think, you know, oh, that's going to be film Mecca. But I mean, from what I hear, land-wise, it's going to be the largest studio in the United States. Yeah. Land-wise. And it's in Austin, Texas. So it's great because now people who want to live in Texas and, and have a house or some land, you know, kids in like a school and ride their bicycle up and down the street and they don't want to live in New York or LA where those things are very difficult to do or you have to live hours away, they're going to be able to do those things. And so I think, you know, I think it's all about elevating people. I was talking to uh, uh, the head of Amazon Unscripted actually just two days ago and he was talking about the same thing, but he was talking about it on a world stage. He was talking about how, you know, Amazon is growing the Latin market, the Latin America market. And, um, you know, he's like, it's pretty crazy because there's a need for content in those areas. But what he found so exciting and what made me like really just drawn to this person was he said, man, we are elevating people's life. We are elevating and we can elevate, and this is his goal, we can elevate entire cities and entire communities in, in South America and Central America and pull people out of poverty by literally creating content locally, by going in, training up locals, by building rental houses in these areas. And then by, there's already a need for content in those areas, in those languages. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, think in 10 years from now, this guy with Amazon's, you know, Amazon's Amazon, he could literally elevate an entire city, you know, poverty level upward by doing this. And to me, that's, I mean, it was so funny. He was, you know, I was, I was there to talk to him about content and, you know, upcoming shows. And this guy's talking about changing people's lives. And I thought, boy, I, this, this is my kind of guy like this, you know, this is, I thought, you know, I was, I thought I was big picture. This guy's huge picture. <laughs> and uh, it was it was pretty exciting, and I think that's what you know. I think that's what's 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 fun is is getting to meet and and work with people who share a, a similar a similar ethos that that a lot of us do in the film community, and that's just elevating each other into the next thing. It's like you know I, I've always hated when when DPs work with an AC and the AC wants to be a DP, but then they want to keep them down because they don't want a competitor. It's like no 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 no. You should take pride in that you trained that AC and now they're better than you. You know, it's like it's, it, that you should be proud of that. Not the other way around. I, I think I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, uh, you know, rising tide raises all boats. And I think that's super huge to think about. It's like, we don't have to keep people down just so that we can have a job. It's like, no, 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 let's rate, let's, let's grow the industry. Let's grow all of this so that we're all on upward platform. We're all successful and, you know, I think a lot of people that I've worked with that maybe have learned something from me, I, I take pride in that. I, it's funny. I take pride in the projects that we work on. It's like, I'm not out there shooting stuff for my clients. I'm, I'm working with the producer and the line producer on budget line items and costs. And, you know, and, and I'm working with the DP on the look of the show and the glass, the AC on the build of the camera. I'm, I'm not physically on set shooting in this, but man, when they're out and it's like, it's number one on Netflix, I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like it, it, I feel like I did it. I feel like I was a part of it because, and I'm so proud of like their success. Like it's my success because I feel like it's all about collaboration. Um, you know, and so it's, it's, I don't know, it's really fun. I mean, here I am, we did the uh, Super Bowl halftime show. And so it was like, you know, it's like 16 Venice two cameras, Rihanna at the halftime show, which is 
the biggest platform in the United States, 117 billion people watching live. You can't get any more stressful and tense and crazy than that. And my client, the Funicular Goats, they land the job. They come to us for cameras and lenses. And then I remember they called me a couple of weeks beforehand and they're like, do you want to come? And I'm thinking, come on, do you really have to ask? Like, you know, so I'm a big Chiefs fan because I'm from Missouri. It's the Chiefs. At the time, I didn't even know it was going to be the Chiefs when they asked, but it's the Chiefs. And I'm like, of course. So I go and I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm, I'm there as an observer. But man, I felt such pride in that team and the gear that I helped provide. Um, and I think going back to the good people on set and like good personalities, it was crazy to be there because it's the most stressful, crazy thing that you can be involved in. So basically they have like, I don't know, about six minutes to roll in the stage, the lights and all the cameras stab it with some fiber. They go live to 117 million people do this 12 minute show. That's completely rehearsed. Every single cut is rehearsed. Like it's not like, it's not like um, a normal live thing where you just cut to different cameras. Like every cut from one to the next is pre-rehearsed and pre-ready to go. Um, and then they do this 12 minute show and then they have like three or four minutes to break everything down and get off the field. And I mean the, but yet, Everyone's smiling, laughing, joking. Everyone's like, the thing is when you work with people who know what they're doing, you empower them and you trust them. You know, the sky's the limit. It's like, you know, you don't need to be micromanaging people. It's like, trust the people, hire the best, trust them and let them do it. And it was, it was such a fun experience to be there. And it was pretty great to have a all access pass and wander around the field and go anywhere I wanted. Don't get wrong. It was like, it was like a life, life experience. It was great. But it's like the biggest stage ever and yet the people were the most grounded crew that you could ever, you know, imagine. Uh, so it was, it was a ton of fun. Wow. That's, uh, I, that feels like a great place to wind down. What do you think, John? That I don't know how you beat the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's so many other stories that I want to have and talk about in person. Gabe, I miss you. And I, I look forward to getting back out west again for Me projects and, and actually talking into ethos. Because I think we have never really, really gotten to dive into that pool before of talking ethos and talking philosophy. And I, I love where your mind is so much. Um, so we end every podcast with something kind of special and fun, which is where we ask our participant to describe the sound of a happy day, of a perfect moment. Um, and you can choose whatever that moment is. It can be something that really is important to you, or it can be something off the cuff. But take us on a journey acoustically, describe the sounds and the visuals and then we let Dane do some magic, and Dane will build a soundscape on which we will float away. All right, let's see if I can do this. I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm uh, I, I'm not a great talker, so I'm just kidding. Um, we'll see. We'll see if I can do this. So I don't know. I think for me, uh, uh, the one of the best parts of every single day is, and don't laugh. I ride a bird scooter, which it's my own. I own it, but I ride a bird scooter from my house to the office every morning. Um, it's a little electric scooter that I ride on the sidewalk and it's my, I don't listen to headphones and I try to tune out all the crazy, you know, people honking at me and this and that and yelling and all the craziness that's happening on an LA morning. And I tune everything out and I mute everything and I go into this like, almost like meditation cone of silence state. And I just start thinking about like all the things that I'm like grateful for and blessed with in life. 
And I started thinking about my daughter and how lucky I am to have her. And you know, how like, I can't wait to get home from work and how we're gonna, we're gonna make cinnamon rolls tomorrow morning. Cause every weekend me and my, my daughter make cinnamon rolls together. And I think about, I think about my wife and how lucky I am to have her. And, and then I, you know, and my, my mind will drift in different places, but it's, it's crazy because everyone always tries to think about, you know, how stressful my day is going to be. Right. And, I, and, I, and instead of thinking about how crazy and stressful and how I'm going to, how I'm going to have to deal with this person or that person or deal with this budget or this employee or this issue. Instead of those things, I drown it all out. And I think about how lucky I am to work with people that I like, you know, how I'm going to go have a drink with these people after work or how I'm going to, you know, and I feel like every morning when I do that, it's a 10 minute little scooter ride in. And those 10 minutes are so valuable and it puts my head in a completely different space. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, you think there are so many people who don't have jobs, who don't have a family, who don't have people they work with, who have just miserable lives. And it starts to put things in proper perspective. Uh, when you just think about all the things that you're blessed with that you honestly don't deserve. And so those are, I don't know, that's, that's my happy place every morning. Those 10 minutes on a scooter with a little wind in my, uh, in my hair, you know, cruising at 13 miles an hour, just thinking about all the, all the grateful things, all the things I'm grateful for in life. That's, that's my happy place. I don't know if that works, but that's, that's what, that's what came to my mind. That's Gabriel Mays, everybody. Thanks for having me on. Such beautiful. Thanks for being here. No, such, such fun to talk to you guys. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, John is, John is an amazing person and uh, it's crazy how we, we connected just right away. I mean, it was just one of those things where it was just certain people in life, when you meet them within five minutes, it was like we were going to be bros for life. And uh, it's crazy. We haven't seen each other in person in what feels like years. And it's like we can reconnect at any moment and we're back like, you know, like best buds in, in seconds. And I think that's that's a testament to a true friendship. So I, I appreciate your friendship, John. I appreciate you too, Gabe. Um, man, uh, so Dane can, ki- can kill the record.